All right, great to see you today. How are you guys doing today? Y'all glad to be here? All right, man, me too. All right, the year was 1900, and the Masonic Lodge Orphanage began. Masonic Lodge Orphanage was uh, created uh, because so many families were hurting during that time period, right around just before the Great Depression and during the Great Depression, many families in Fort Worth could not care for their own families. They couldn't afford it. Many of them left and went to the East Coast, West Coast to try to find work, and they literally abandoned their children. So the Masonic Lodge Orphanage gathered these kids up and took care of them. Now, in 27 years later, 1927, uh, they called a man named Rusty Russell to come be their first football coach. Now, I guess they had the idea that these orphan boys were just beating each other up, and they might ought to give some constructive way to do that, all right? <laughs> they could do that on the football field. So they called uh, Coach Rusty to come be their first coach. Now, they were just a hodgepodge group. I mean, they had borrowed pads and borrowed equipment, just kind of a little here, a little there, people that would donate to the orphanage. Uh, they didn't even have a football at first. They had uh, a pillowcase that they kind of stuffed and, 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 and sewed it up to be kind of the shape of a football. That's what they started with. Eventually, they would get donated, kind of used up equipment. But nevertheless, they started their team. And in their first season, they actually had a record of eight and two. All right, so they, they did really well. Now, they were playing very small teams, but, but they were winning. Nobody expected these orphans to win. In fact, they were called the Mighty Mites, all right, because they were very small. They didn't have much. The Mighty Mites, there were only 12 of them uh, on that first team, the Mighty Mites. Well, the next year, their record was 27 and 11 or the next five years, the record was 27 and 11. So, I mean, they were like winning and winning. And every time they would win, they would get bumped up to a larger classification because they were just dominating at every place they were. By 1932, they were actually playing at the 7A high, Texas high school classification, which is the largest schools all played at that level. They were actually playing at that level. Now, these teams, they would come rolling in in their buses with their fancy new equipment, their fancy new jerseys, all their new stuff with their cheerleaders and their band and all that. And, and the mighty mites would come rolling in on the back of a flatbed truck. That's all they had. I mean, they had nothing. But when they got on the field, they would fight. I mean, it was almost like that struggle for survival in their life just translated right onto the field and they would just take it to them. They actually played in, in 1940 for the state champ, Texas state championship. I, I believe it was against Amarillo, but they played and I mean, they were total underdogs, but yet they were giving it all they had and they just captured the heart of the state. People would travel all over to watch the mighty mites play football. In fact, so much so that they weren't coming in hundreds, they were coming in thousands. They, they didn't have a stadium to, to, to accommodate all the people that wanted to come and watch this team. And so they would have to play down at TCU, which was the largest field at the time. And so finally, they decided in the 1930s, they decided to build a stadium that would be large enough to accommodate all the people that wanted to watch the Mighty Mites play football. And that stadium is still here today. It's called Farrington Field. Farrington Field in the heart of Fort Worth was built by the Mighty Mites. These 12 little orphans 
that came from nothing, that had nothing, but did something that was amazing. Now listen, Jesus did a lot of the same way. He started with 12 guys, probably about the same age as these orphans. They came from nothing, they had nothing, they weren't prominent people, they didn't have a great education. But he took these 12 men, young men, and he did something. He started a movement that literally swept all over the world. We've been talking about that movement in this series. And we said in the very first message of this series, we said Jesus started moving, movement and he wants us to get moving. And we talked about the vision that God has given us to plant uh, five, uh, nine churches over the next five years. We talked about that. And then the next week we said that that move is not going to happen in our strength. It actually happens in our weakness. That we can't do it. And so the Spirit of God comes and does what we cannot do. Last week we said that the movement is fueled by boldness. And we looked at the boldness of the early church and said that's what moves the movement forward is the boldness of God's people. But today I want to talk about what that movement looks like. And that movement is found in an unstoppable church. The movement of Jesus is an unstoppable church. And we're going to talk about what an unstoppable church looks like. Now, I'm going to give you a little heads up. In the first service, I said something like this. I said, now, don't you want to be an unstoppable church? And it was like crickets, cricket, 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 cricket. And I said, obviously, you didn't hear me. And I did a little mic check. Then I tried again. Of course, then they gave me a, yeah, you know. Uh, second service, I actually gave them a heads up like I'm giving you. So I'm going to ask you that question. And, and now, now that you know what I'm headed for, you can like fill your lungs with air, kind of loosen your shoulders, got to get a good posture to give a nice response. All right, are you ready? We're talking about an unstoppable church. Now, don't you want to be an unstoppable church? Yeah. I love me some third service. I love you guys. Y'all are awake. Y'all are with it. All right, fantastic. All right, get your Bible out. Open it up. Let's do what we do. Acts chapter 4. We get into God's Word. It's what we do every single week. Get your paper out, pen out. We're going to write some things down about what an unstoppable church looks like. I'm going to give you three things. First thing we're going to talk about is an unstoppable church is a praying church. It's a praying church. Now, let me kind of set up, set the stage here. We are, uh, Peter and John have gone to the temple. This is after Pentecost. They've gone to the temple. They saw a man that was crippled. They healed him miraculously in the name of Jesus. And they gathered a crowd and began to talk about Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And of course, they were arrested quickly. They were brought before the next day, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. And they asked him a question, under what name have you done this? Under what authority have you done this? And they said, you really want to know the name? We'll tell you the name. At the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you killed, who the Father exalted, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Great boldness, man. On fire boldness, right? And uh, so this ruling council says, all right, well, uh, don't do that again. All right, just keep your mouth shut. All right, don't, don't talk about Jesus anymore. We're going to let you slide on this one, but, but, or else, right, we'll, we'll come back at you, so you just keep your mouth closed. And so they leave, and they go gather with the other Christians. And what are they going to do? How are they going to respond? So much is at stake. All right, so this is where we pick it up. Verse 23, this is the Word of God, Acts 4, verse 23. It says, after they were released... They went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. 
You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The, earth, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and will and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servant may speak your word with boldness whilst you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now stop right there. I want you to notice something, that the first thing that happens when they are under pressure, first thing that happens when things are going wrong, when they're threatened, the very first thing is that they, what do they do? Somebody tell me. They prayed. They prayed. They did not, when they were under pressure, when they got resistance, they did not circulate a petition. They didn't do a demonstration. They didn't parade down the main street. They didn't try to pull political strings. They just simply prayed. I think, you know, that, that's so simple, right? But it's so important. Prayer was their first response, not their last resort. Now, I want you to think about that. Many times in our lives, when things happen, to us, things go wrong, right? Things are not going right. Things are not going what we want. Then, then we will try to do everything we can to fix the problem. And then we'll say at the end of it, well, I guess now we've done everything we can do. All we can do now is pray as if that's a little thing, right? In fact, Oswald Chambers, he put it best. He said, we pray when there's, some, when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. It, it is our first response not our last resort. It is our first response, not our last resort. And these people prayed, they cried out to God for God to intervene in their circumstances. Now, now this is a, an incredible prayer and I, don't, I wanna take a lot of time and I wanna just kinda unpack it a little bit for you so that, that uh, you can see what, how they prayed. First thing they did is that they started with God's authority. Look at verse 424. They said, Master, you are the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. He said, Master, you're, you create everything. That word master there is, we get the, the English word despot from. You're the unrivaled leader, the total ultimate authority. Master, you're the one that, you know, we're, we're called in front of this council as if they think that they're the ultimate authority. But no, you're the ultimate authority. You're the one that we're going to give an account to. You're the one that we answer to. Master. We're coming to you, the ultimate authority. God's the ultimate authority. And then they go on to talk about how God saw this from the very beginning. Look at verse, look at verse 25. He said, you said uh, through the, your Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, why the Gentiles rage, the people plot futile things, the kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers assemble against the Lord and against his Messiah. In other words, they're saying, Lord, you wrote this down a long time ago. You knew this was going to happen a long time ago. Father, you knew, you spoke through the Holy Spirit, through David, hundreds of years ago, that this very thing would happen. And he said, here it is, in this city, now it's actually happening. Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, the Jews, they're all coming against your anointed one, Jesus. 
All this is under your control. You've known this from the beginning. Listen, no matter what happens in your life, all that is filtered through the sovereignty and the love of God. Even, in, even the difficult things, the hard things, these things are brought into our lives. Many times we don't know why, we don't understand them, but what we do know is that all those things can be platforms on which Jesus Christ can stand and be exalted and be revealed in his glory through our experience and through our life. And they said, Lord, we just, that's what we want. You, you, you've orchestrated all this. This has all been foretold. None of this is catching you off, off guard. You're the ultimate authority. And then they pray. And I want you to notice what they ask for. Now, here it is. Here's the big ask. Here's what they're asking for. God, would you um, give us boldness? Would you consider these threats? And God, would you stretch out your hand in a supernatural way so that everybody that watches will know that you're at work? You know, so many times when we go through difficult times and we're praying, right, we're praying. But you know what we're praying? We're praying, Lord, please take it away. Lord, please make it stop. Lord, please heal my marriage or fix my kid or uh, heal my sickness or deal with my, help me find a job or, you know, Lord, just help these things stop, or, you know, this, this pain around me. But they did not one time ask for protection. They didn't ask for him to take it away. They didn't ask for these men to change their mind. All they said was, Lord, give us the courage to go through whatever we need to go through. And Lord, do something great through this. God, do, do something so that people will see, God, that you are good and that our message about Jesus is true. Imagine if you were to start praying like that. God, I'm not asking you to take it away. I'm asking you to give me courage and for God to use, to use this in a way that exalts Jesus. You know, there's something that I see almost every Sunday and almost after every service that you don't see because I get to stay, see from this vantage point. Um, usually what happens is I give a final goodbye blessing of some kind and then everybody kind of starts gathering their stuff and they, you start to scatter. You scamper off to your next thing or your, your next appointment or whatever, kind of through all the doors. But what will happen almost every service is there will be a few pockets that stay back. And I will see them either holding hands together, their heads bowed, sometimes their arms around each other. Almost every service I see people praying for each other. That's a praying church. Stepping into the real problems, the real challenges, and real hurts of life. Just a couple weeks ago, I was down here in the, to the side, and uh, a young couple came up to me and said, Pastor Craig, we, we don't know if you remember us, but um, about 18 months ago, uh, you walked us through the death of our child. And um, I said, oh, yes, I remember you. And, and uh, they said, well, we just wanted to introduce somebody to you. And they reached in and pulled out this brand new baby girl. Big old thick head of hair and beautiful smile. And uh, we got to just circle around this baby and thank God that he walked them through the difficult times. And he's blessed them with this child. You see, if you want to see God do great things, it starts in prayer. Prayer can never be our last resort. It has to be our first response. 
And that's the way it was with this church. They were, they were unstoppable because they prayed. Let me give you another thing. They were not only unstoppable because they prayed. They were unstoppable because they were unified. Now, I want you to look at verse 32. They were unified. Now, their entire group of, them, of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common with great power. The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. Now, I want you to underline the phrase uh, in verse 32, uh, of one heart and mind. They were unified people. They, they were unified they, they were one. You know, Jesus prayed for this. Jesus prayed that his church would be one, didn't he? He prayed that we'd be one. In John 17, it's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. In John 17, this is the last time he prayed over his disciples before his crucifixion. And he prayed multiple times that they would be one. In fact, seven times was referred to them. He said, Father, make them one. He, he wants us to be one. Now, why, why are we one? What, what is it that causes us to be unified? What is it that causes oneness to happen in the life of a church? Let me tell you what it is. Are you ready for it? Oneness comes, unity comes wrapped around one single purpose, one single mission. When everybody knows what we're doing and everybody knows what we're going for and everybody's in alignment with that, that's when you experience Oneness. I got a good look at that this week. I was sitting in a boardroom with uh, several executives and they were talking about uh, how their uh, operation was going. Everything was going great. Everything was booming. Everything was above last year. Everything was greater than expected. The margins were higher than they've ever been. Everything, all the charts were up and to the right. Okay. And they were talking about how they had really focused on a few things and they were really championing those few things and everybody was getting on board and everybody working hard together and, and they said it began to be exciting. People were wanting to come to work and people were wanting to, wanting to participate and then they started celebrating their wins and they were having great parties and they were in a dunk tank and they were having taco parties and all this kind of crazy stuff because man, everybody's excited and everything's working great. And as I was listening to that, I was thinking to myself, you know, have you ever been in a church like that when everybody's excited to be there, when God's at work, when things are moving, when things are happening, people are giving, people are being saved, people are being discipled, the church is growing. Man, when that thing happens, when that happens, it's an exciting place, isn't it? I mean, people are getting there early, putting their Bible down on their seat so they, they can save their seat. You know, they don't want anybody to get their spot. You know, they're excited about what God's doing. But You've also seen the other side of that too, when there are churches and they're not, they're not all on the same page. In fact, it's a little yin 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 over here, a little yin 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 over there. Here are ye, there are ye, everywhere are ye ye. You know what I'm talking about? I can't believe she's wearing that. Can you believe that he said that? How did they get their own group? You know, and they, and they just start going at each other. And they're divided. And they're sideways. And there's always somebody upset with somebody. And eventually what happens is that kind of church, let me tell you what happens, they begin to lose sight of why they're a church in the first place. They begin to lose sight of their purpose. Why are we even here? These, these churches, when they begin to lose sight, all of a sudden they, they start being more concerned with their preferences than people. All of a sudden they start to be more concerned with their comfort than the cause of Jesus Christ. 
They become more concerned with themselves and they're saying, well, what about us? Instead of looking outward and saying, what about them? They, They just completely lose perspective. And those churches always die. Some of them die slow, painful deaths. Some of them go away pretty quick. But they always die. Why? Because they lose sight of their mission. But what happened in this early church and what's happening here by God's grace is to keep our eyes on the purpose, right? We're very diverse. I mean, we come from all different backgrounds. We come from all different generations. Uh, We have all different kind of preferences, but there's one thing that holds us together. There's one thing that unites us, and that is Jesus Christ unites us. And not only Jesus uniting us, but the purpose of Jesus uniting us, that is the, that is what causes us to have this this force of movement together, this unity together, because we are called for one purpose, and that is to share the gospel, that is to make disciples that will multiply, and to plant churches that will do the same until Jesus comes back. That's why we're here. That's our purpose. That's our mission. And listen, listen, we, we ever forget that, we might as well just shut the doors, right? Because this is our, and and this is what Jesus called his church to be. Boy, look at them. They're unstoppable. Why? Because they're praying. They're unstoppable because they're unified. Let me give you one more. They're unstoppable because they are generous. They're generous. I mean, look, look at it. I'm not making this up. It's right there in the Bible, all right? Look at it. Look at, uh, look at verse uh, 34. For there was not a needy person among them. Because all of them who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, one of the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. They're, They're generous people. And, and why, are they being, why are they selling and gathering stuff and, 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 and caring for one another? Let me tell you why. This is a serious thing. See, many, this church was made up of former Jews, right? They grew up in Jewish homes. They worked in Jewish businesses. Many of them were employed by the temple area, which was a big, huge operation. And so once they said, hey, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, they were kicked out of their house. Hey, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay, you don't work for me anymore. I'm a follower. Okay, you, don't, you can't come to the temple and you, you certainly don't work. So they didn't have a way to make money. They had no way to provide for themselves. They would be utterly destitute. And so this is one of the first times where we see the early church saying, hey, I got you. You're my brother. You're my sister. Don't worry about it. We're family. We will take care of each other. And they began to give generously above and beyond. Even this guy, Barnabas, you, you mentioned him. He's going to be an important guy later on in the story of the book of Acts. We kind of see him for the first time here. It's a little teaser alert, little uh, cameo appearance of Barnabas here. His actual name was Joseph. He's just an average Joe, but he had a nickname Barney because he was an encourager. Barnabas means son of encouragement. He was an encourager. He'd encourage people with his words and he encouraged them with his wealth. Now listen to me. It is a good thing to give. It is a good thing to be generous. Now, I've said this before, and you know that this is true. I don't hardly talk about money at all. I mean, we don't hardly ever talk. I should preach on a whole lot more than I do. I don't hardly ever talk about it. We don't even pass a plate here. We have these little boxes at the door. 
And they don't even beep at you when you walk by them. You know, we should have a little beeper or something. Hey, hey, buddy, you know, something like that. They don't have that. You know, they just sit there silently, right? But there is one time a year when I unashamedly encourage you to be generous. You know, you're thinking about giving anyway. You're probably already thinking about what you're going to give for Christmas, right? You're already making up your little plans. The other day I was in the living room and I hollered at Liz. She was in the back, back room and I said, hey, honey, are you, think, are you thinking about buying me this certain product for uh, uh, this certain item for Christmas? And she was like, what do you mean? How, how do you know that? I'm like, well, you must have been searching online because it's all over my Facebook feed right now, you know? <laughs> so you got to watch what you search for online pops up on Facebook. But anyway, you know, we, we're always looking at what we're, gonna, what we're going to give other people. But you know what? Normally those gifts are only for the moment, aren't they? They're just for the moment. People go, oh, that's great. I love that. Or, you know, that, this thing's cool or whatnot. And then, you know, by 1st of January, you know, it's already stuck in a drawer somewhere. What we're asking you to do with this big give offering is give above and beyond as the Lord would lead you to plant a church that will make a difference for generations. That will do something that affects people's eternity. This church, some of you may be a part of going to help establish. But it's something we all can do that we know is on God's heart. Some of you may not realize how our church was started this church in Colleyville, actually, we're, we're having our 65th birthday next year, 2020. We turned 65. I think we look pretty good for 65, don't you? 65 is the new 35 or whatever, whatever the thing is, you know. Uh, we look pretty good for 65. And uh, our church got started because there were a handful of people that were on that kind of that, a little bit further out from here, that uh, decided to plant a church. And so they left the church that they knew and they gathered together in homes and they started to dream this dream. What if we could be a part of starting this new church? And uh, they began to pray together and they began to look for a place to meet. And so they started meeting at the old Colleyville school, which was on our ball fields right over here, directly behind us. They started meeting in the old Colleyville school and they started uh, having services and other, that other people began to catch hold of their vision of what this church could be like. In fact, there's one picture that I love that we found in kind of the photo albums of our church history that I absolutely love, and I wanna, wanna show it to you. This is uh, one of the pastors, uh, maybe the first pastor, and he's talking to the congregation that's growing of this new church. And, and I love this picture, I wanna just leave it up there for a little bit. I love this picture because He's obviously speaking to them, and it looks like he's casting vision. And so I just, as I look at that, I'm just kind of letting my mind wonder, wonder what he was saying. And I'm thinking, you know, what if he was saying this? What if he was saying, just look at it. What if he was saying, uh, folks, we're about to plant a new church. And one day this church is not only going to just draw a few hundred people, it's going to draw thousands of people. This new church is going to swell to 4,000 members. 
And if we give our life to plant this new church, this new church will reach generations that we will never see, generations of people we will never meet. Young and old will come to this church that we plant. He'll say, if we, if we just plant this church, if we give ourselves to it, we pray that maybe this church that we plant will actually start other churches and, and that they will plant other churches, that plant other churches and maybe, maybe people all over this area will begin to hear the gospel and be a disciple because of their ministry. Maybe this church that we plant, just think of big, bigger, maybe the church that we plant would actually plant churches overseas in places like, Spain and Israel and, and England and Central and South America and, and Africa. Maybe this church that we're about to plant would do something that would start a movement that would never, ever stop. Folks, the dream that they had that day is becoming reality today. What they sacrificed for what they dreamed for, what they gave for is happening in your lifetime. You are seeing it through this church. You see, I don't believe that God's done. Do you? I don't think that God is saying, okay, I just wanted to have a good-sized church in the metro. No, God's got bigger plans than that. Plans to start churches that will start churches. Plans for a movement that would go beyond our imagination. So 65 years from now, some of us aren't going to be around. But 65 years from now, maybe our grandchildren, maybe our great-grandchildren will talk about, yeah, I remember that church in this Colleyville. This, who'd even heard of Colleyville? Nobody's even heard of that place. And yet that church began to grow and plant churches and, and they began to go to the nations. And look at what it started for such a small place. Maybe they will ask you, what did you do in those days? When that church was planting churches, did you ever go on a church plant? Did you ever give? Did you ever get on a plane and go to help one get started somewhere else? And maybe you'll say, yeah, man, that was great. It was so cool. Man, your dad and I, your grandpa and I, or your grandma and I, we, got, we, we went to faraway places. We saw the gospel move. We helped plant churches all over. It was some of the best days of my life. Or maybe you'll say, you know what? I remember the church doing something, but I never really got on board. I just watched from a distance. Listen, the movement of God is unstoppable. He wants an unstoppable church, one that prays, one that's unified around the mission, and one that will give and go till Jesus comes back. That's what God's called us to so I want us to make a statement today, a statement about what we are doing moving forward. We're gonna end our service a little differently than we normally do. I want us to pray and I want us to pray together. I want us to pray out loud together. Now in just a minute, I'm gonna ask you to stand up and we're gonna, I'm just gonna pray a phrase and you can pray with closing your eyes, bowing your head, you're praying out loud. But here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want any, um, timid prayers. I need some, I need some praying. I need you to vocalize your prayer. I need you to say it loud and strong and for us together as one to make a declarative statement 
that we are surrendering ourselves to the Lord and to his purpose until he comes. Can you do that? All right, so why don't you stand with me right now? And let's pray together. Bow your heads. Let's pray together. You know, the scripture talks about lifting up holy hands in prayer. So if you feel led by the Spirit of God to lift up your hand, then lift up your hands as we pray together to the Lord. And you repeat this prayer after me. Dear Father, we are your children. And you are our God. You're our master. You're our ruler. You're our king. And we submit ourselves to you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on a cross for us. Thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives within us. And now, Lord, see us standing here. We're on the brink of a new day. And you put so much before us. Lord, fill us with your spirit as we make disciples, as we plant churches. God, stretch out your hand and do amazing things so the people will know that you are good and you are great and you are king of all. Lord, you've been so faithful in our past. Now we trust you to be faithful in our future. Lord, do great works again. Lord, bring revival. Bring awakening. Use us again, God. And help us to be on your mission until you come again. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And we long for his coming. Amen. And amen.